what that experience and having lost taught me was, as, you know, sometimes doors close, but windows open. Um, there is, at sometimes there is a plan that's beyond our own plans. From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and author of the Politico Playbook. That's Heather Wilson, the secretary of the U.S. Air Force, and someone who's being mentioned as a possible successor to Jim Mattis as Secretary of Defense. Before that, she ran a college, served in Congress for 10 years, started her own business, worked in national security under Presidents Reagan and Bush, and earned a Rhodes Scholarship. Before all of that, she was part of just the third class of women admitted to the Air Force Academy. So you arrive at the Academy and, you know, you get off the bus and they yell at you and all that kind of stuff. Um, Typical basic training for the military. And then they walk you up this ramp. And at the time, these big aluminum letters over this arch, it says, bring me men. (laughs) (laughs) We also talked about what it's like to be at the forefront of a new generation of women in leadership roles throughout the traditionally male-dominated national security world. And I think what what it says to young women is there aren't any barriers. There are no barriers um, to, uh, to talent rising. And I think that's wonderful. America needs exceptionally talented people, and they come in all shapes and sizes. Now, here's my conversation with Heather Wilson. Well, Secretary, thank you so much for joining us. We have a lot to talk about, but I wanted to start. Uh, the Air Force has generally been the branch of the armed services that focuses on space. Mm. You, as Secretary of the Air Force, have said that outer space is shifting from a benign to a contested environment Mm -hmm. and that more resources are needed to protect America's strategic position in space. For people who maybe aren't as familiar with this issue, why is space such an important field for the armed services? The Air Force has about 80 satellites on orbit. We have 90% of what the Defense Department does in space is done by the Air Force. So about 80 satellites. Um, we're the best in the world at space, and our adversaries know it. But what do we do up there? Well, the the, uh, the Air Force operates 33 GPS satellites. So the, the blue dot on your phone is courtesy of the United States Air Force. So if there are four satellites uh, within view of your phone at any one time, which there generally are on any point on the Earth, then your phone can triangulate where it is to within a couple of yards. And so, so we provide that to the world. We also do communications. We do missile warning. So we have a, we have satellites that stare at the earth and look for really hot plumes that come off of missiles. And within seconds or minutes, we'll warn the United States that, uh, that there's a missile launch somewhere around the globe. So those are the things we do. Um, and then we, of course, intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance. So we, we take pictures from space and those kind of things. Everything from from spying to uh, now I know how I get from point A to point B on my phone. <laughs> yep, and they, you know there was uh, the the GPS system was really started for for aviation and for for military purposes, but but after. Um, there was a Korean airliner that was that was uh, that strayed over the Kamchatka Peninsula and was shot down. And after that happened, President Reagan uh, unencoded, unencrypted the signal from the GPS satellites so that civilian airliners could use them too. <laughs> and because it's now not encrypted, all those apps that are enabled, like Uber or <laughs> or Yelp or <laughs> any others, uh, or even just Google Maps, mm-hmm. they use that signal because it's unencrypted uh, for, <laughs> off of military satellites. The president has proposed a space force as a new branch of the military, which is something the Air Force itself has long been uneasy about. 
Now there's a proposal on the table to form a Space Force uh, under the purview of the Air Force, which would manage and host many of its operations and acquire most of its equipment. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the proposal, what, mm. what it's going to do? The uh, the president will put forward a p- piece of draft legislation along with the budget, which should happen within the next month or so here. And uh, I mentioned that we're the best in the world at space. Um, our adversaries have paid attention to that, and they're developing the capability to deny us the use of space in crisis or in war. We can't allow that to happen. And so uh, the president has made clear that he wants a branch focused on space and elevate the importance of space uh, in the military and in the Defense Department, and his proposal will do that. The proposal, as it's drafted now, would keep the space force underneath the Department of the Air Force. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, it would, and it includes a, a chief of staff for space. I think one of the most important things that's already underway is uh, is the reestablishment of a combatant command for space, which we had up until 9/11, and then it. It was it was disestablished after 9/11 when when Northcom was created. And what probability do you see it moving forward in, in the Hill? Obviously, there's a lot of different opinions about sure. that. Sure, and I think the the Congress is going to have to sort that out. The, 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 we have a the, you are well aware of <laughs> yes. of uh, as am I of all of the things that go on up on Capitol Hill, and they'll fully debate this, I'm sure, and engage. But the proposal will be going forward along with this year's budget. All right. Well, let's step back a bit and talk about your background. Uh, in 1978, you enrolled at the Air Force Academy as part of its only its third class to admit women, which is kind of crazy when I 1978. Uh, can you take me back to that moment? What was it like when I arrived? Yeah. Well, for, let me take one step further back. I can remember where I was. When it, my mother had a black and white television in her bedroom in our house, and I remember the news was on. And of course, at that time, the news only came on, you know, at five o'clock right. in the afternoon. Uh, and they had, there was this news story about the Air Force Academy uh, accepting its first class of women. So I was a junior in high school, I guess. And I thought that was pretty interesting. My mother, I mentioned something about it being interesting. And my mother, fortunately, didn't say that would be a great idea because being a normal teenager, I would have then done something completely right. opposite. But she she did suggest that I go talk to my grandfather, um, who was a, both my father and my grandfather were aviators. And so my grandfather was still alive and I, I went to talk to him about it. Uh, and I can remember where he was sitting in his living room. Uh, what did he say? Well, so my grandfather started flying shortly after the Wright brothers. He flew in the First World War. He came to America. He was a barnstormer. He opened up airports. And then he, he flew in the Second World War for the United States. So he had flown really since the early days of aviation. But he had my grandfather had two sons and five grandsons and me. <laughs> and and uh, so I was his only granddaughter. And, and he had never had a daughter. And so I went to talk to him about it. He got real quiet, and then he—I uh, remember—he said uh, he he had flown with some women in World War II, the Wasps, mm-hmm. and they had towed targets and ferried airplanes and things. And uh, and he and he said, "Well, I flew with some women in World War II, and they were pretty good sticks. So I guess that'd be okay." <laughs> what was that? What was it? What's it like to fly? I mean, when you when you think back with that first time getting to doing that, what's it? Can you? 
tell our listeners a little bit, bring them you know, behind sure. the scenes a little bit? Well, I, uh, I started flying with my father when I was, uh, when I was very young. I'd, I actually probably don't even remember the first time I went flying with him, but he had a Piper Cub, he and his best friend. And, uh, uh, and you had to, at that time, there, his Cub didn't have an electronic ignition or anything, so you had to actually stand outside and hold on to the prop, and then you'd yell clear, and he'd spin the prop by hand and then reach back in and use the throttle to catch, you know, once mm-hmm. the to to catch it and, and and keep the engine going. So he'd get us in and put us we'd have to sit on a pillow to be able to see out the window of a Piper Cub and then he'd get in and and we'd go flying, but we often left the door open. So because it was more fun that way and <laughs> um and I I think about this now. I've I've uh, we've raised three kids now and um and you know, I was I certainly was hadn't started school yet. So I was less than five years old, strapped into the front seat of a Piper Cub with the door open. And I'm thinking, I would never let my kids do that. I mean, seriously, <laughs> living on the edge. Well, that was fun, you know, and and uh, my dad's best friend had a dairy farm. So so we'd take off on the on the field where the cows were. And um, and then you'd have to come in and kind of do one one loop around before you landed to make sure you moved the cows out of the way. And and uh, so you could land. Well, your father passed away in a car crash uh, when you were just a child. And mm-hmm. your mom, who'd been a homemaker caring for you and your brothers, had to return to the workforce as a nurse to become the breadwinner. She was a nurse, yeah. There weren't a lot of women that were working outside of the home at that time. Do you think that changed how you thought about kind of what you were going to do and, and mm-hmm. what a role for women was in, in the workforce? I don't know that um, – so my mother was a nurse and she was also a visiting nurse when we were little kids and she was an operating room nurse and ran the hospital operating room. I don't know if that was it or – I can remember as a as a, uh, even before my dad passed away, I remember sitting at the kitchen table and my mother said uh, – so I was probably seven, six. Um, so so f- f- I was a first grader mm-hmm. and – and we, we each had a bank. It was an old Crisco can with a slot cut out of the top. And that's where you put all the extra change that people gave us. And, and we keep it on the shelf in the pantry. And uh, I remember my mother saying that uh, I could go to camp this next summer at the YMCA camp. And I could take my money from my can and to help pay for camp. And she would should would put in whatever else was needed after I you know after I contributed to it too and I said well I I can't do that and, and I remember her saying well well why and I said because I'm saving for college wow and um and I remember it because she just laughed she thought that was and I would <laughs> I would have laughed too if this you know first grader saving for college in a Crisco can but but um and my 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 cousin was there too and laughed they just thought that was so funny but I knew when I was first grade I was going to college and no one in my family had ever gone to college so I have no idea where I got that idea from where but I was saving for college from first grade. You knew grade. it was expensive. <laughs> yep. You know, and that Crisco can um, probably stayed with me right up through high school. <laughs> I bet. What was it like, though? I mean, you're the third class of women at in the Air Force. Mm-hmm. Did you encounter any, you know, issues or problems? Oh, sure. Sure. There were a lot of people at the time who still didn't think women belonged in, in the military or as officers anyway and at, at the academy. And so there was, there was still a fair amount of that at the time. So you arrive at the academy and, you know, you get off the bus and they yell at you and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, 
typical basic training for the military. And then they walk you up this ramp. And at the time, there's this wonderful poem. I think it's called The Coming American. But it's a, it's a, it's a great poem. And it's the first line of the poem. But it was, uh, it was over the arch there at the Air Force Academy that you walk up to go onto that beautiful campus. And, uh, and so in these big aluminum letters over this arch, it says, Bring me men. <laughs> and it's from a wonderful poem. It's bring me men to match my mountains. Bring me men to match my plains. Men with empires in their purpose and new, new eras in their brains. And it's a wonderful poem. But it, uh, it's just the first line. And, you know, we all at the time kind of laughed about it a little bit. But After graduating from the academy and then getting a PhD from Oxford, uh, you worked in Brussels as part of the U.S. mission to NATO. So this mm. is kind of setting the stage during the height of the Cold War, tensions between the West and Russia were incredibly high. Mm. How did that color the way or how does it color the way that you see the importance of NATO and alliances today? Oh, I think our alliances are absolutely vital. And it is then the North Atlantic Treaty Organization has helped to keep the peace in Europe and helped to to uh, allow prosperity to blossom around around the world. And the uh, one of the ironies is that Article Five of the NATO Treaty, which says an attack on one of us shall be considered to be an attack on us all. So the the mutual security guarantee that is the core of what NATO is about. The only time that article has been exercised was after 9-11 when America was attacked and our NATO allies came to our defense. It's pretty amazing. It wasn't the attack we expected, mm. but we were stronger together uh, than any of us are alone. Last night, um, the chief of staff invited uh, uh, the French chairman, uh, the, the French air chief who's visiting America today. And, uh, and they arrived last night and came over for dinner with the chief of staff of the Air Force and his wife and and uh, some of the leaders of the Air Force, my husband and I. And it was a wonderful dinner. And, uh, uh, and there is a very close connection between airmen around the world. Um, the French were the first Air Force to join us in the fight against ISIS to support Iraq in driving ISIS out of Iraq and Syria. They are also, and I, I made a toast last night to our allies, um, I served in Congress, but if you go in the House chamber, so the, the chamber where everyone last week saw the president give the State of the Union address, it's a beautiful chamber. It is the, it's the people's house. Mm -hmm. And there are two full-size portraits in that room. There's only two. One is a very well-known portrait of George Washington, and everyone recognizes it. The other one, just as large on the other side of the dais, is one that almost nobody pays attention to. Because nobody even realizes who that is, uh, because almost no American recognizes the portrait of Lafayette. There are two founders of the Republic, in a way, honored in the House of the People in the United States Congress, and one is of a French citizen. This, this alliance goes back a long way. The president has obviously been more skeptical of NATO. Have you mm. shared your thoughts with him on this? No, I, I, you know, I'm the secretary of the Air Force. My job is to organize, train, and equip air forces for the conduct of sustained operations in the air. Uh, I administer the force and recruit and and equip that force. Uh, that uh, those those things are not my responsibility. After Brussels, you came to Washington to work on the National Security Council under President George H.W. Bush. Mm -hmm. You focused on arms control, a position with incredibly high stakes. 
and were in the position in that position when the Berlin Wall fell, Soviet bloc crumbled. On the one hand, it had to be exhilarating, but it also left very little room for error. Hmm. How do you handle these high pressure jobs? And do you have any advice for our listeners? Hmm. Um, I, I think I've over time gathered tools for my toolbox. I remember when the Berlin Wall fell, and I was, I was, I was the youngest member of the National Security Council staff at the time, and I came in on a Saturday, and Ambassador Bob Blackwell was the senior advisor at the time for European affairs. And I remember going into his office, bringing him something, and, and uh, he was sitting there in this Queen Anne's chair, kind of, you know, watching and, and, and reading some things, and, and uh, it was a pretty amazing few days. And, uh, and he said, now we have to under we have to figure out what to do. There was that feeling of everyone. Sometimes people watch what was happening at that time on CNN, and you just celebrate and you're watching and you're a spectator. But for the president and for his close advisors, they have to decide how to act, how to influence future events, and. Um, I've always been comfortable in that situation of trying to figure out where we need to go and and how we need to get there and probably less passive or comfortable just watching. So I've always thought of the world that way. I also think that I've, I've gathered a lot of tools along the way. I've got this this uh, this metaphorical snap on toolbox in my in my uh, in my study that I just put things in over time and it's amazing how many tools will come come to be useful that you haven't used for a while. One of the things that struck me at when reading about you and preparing for this interview is how many different hats you've worn. Yeah. So after serving in the Air Force and the administration, you moved to New Mexico, got married, started a business, and then entered the political world. Mm -hmm. How did you decide to make that jump of first own your own business, but then also in politics, often women, uh, we, we talk to you all the time, and this have to be asked many times to mm. run before they take that leap. It was uh, it was not part of my life's plan. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I was um, I was running a business, and I uh, the, we had a new governor elected in New Mexico, and um, I, I had gotten involved as a volunteer in the school system, and uh, they had some serious problems in Albuquerque Public Schools, and they were recruiting a new superintendent, mm -hmm. and uh, and they were looking for someone not necessarily an educator, but possibly a, a business leader or leader from another realm to tr help try to on the turn the system around. So there were some serious problems there. So I put my name in, and I was one of the finalists. And and as it, it always reminds me of that Garth Brooks songs, you, you know, thank God for unanswered prayers. Mm -hmm. They chose someone else, <laughs> and and so so I had. Um, I was, had become a little bit known in the community as being interested in education. And uh, so I got this phone call from the transition chief for the incoming governor and, and said, uh, said, you don't know anything about this, but the, the governor would like to talk to you about becoming the cabinet secretary for child welfare for children, oh. youth and families. And I felt like I almost it was almost like, have you got the right number? <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, but my husband and I had been foster parents. My husband was a foster parent as a single guy, and then we were foster parents together. We have one. Our oldest son is adopted. It was a foster son that we couldn't scare away. And so so um, I went to talk to him about it and uh, and decided, ended up selling my business and becoming the cabinet secretary for child welfare. So that was my first foray into kind of a public position. It was appointed, but it was, it was very high profile. I mean, he had because the child welfare department was a complete mess, like 
most child welfare departments. So we did a lot of reform. Um, uh, took the child welfare system out of 18 years of federal government receivership, so it was under a federal consent degree, and did a lot of reform and cleaned a lot of things up. And um, and then um, my predecessor in the Congress became very seriously ill, and eight days before the filing deadline, announced he was not going to be able to run for re-election. So maybe maybe this all happened because there was no time to think about <laughs> these things. So you just had to decide. And and the senior senator from New Mexico met with me the weekend after that happened and uh, talked to me for about two hours and then called me when he was flying back to Washington. So it's now like a week before the filing deadline and said, look, if you will run, I will help you. And I decided to run. I I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Most people don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I had no time to think about it or think about it twice. I also had a very supportive husband and, and um, no, he always has been. What was the biggest surprise about campaigning, uh, your election, kind of that first foray into politics, real elected politics? I was running against a very well-known state senator who was independently wealthy. Um, His family owned uh, the Coors distributors. Never run against somebody who owns the beer company. That's tough. (laughs) um, And and owned the Sacramento Kings and a bank in in Utah and uh, a casino in Las Vegas. So they were just really connected, really wealthy. Uh-huh. I mean, I, it was, I didn't realize how hard that was going to be. So you spent 10 years in Congress serving in the House. Uh, and then ahead of the 2008 election, you ran for Senate. I did. Uh, in 2012. So you lost that race. What did that experience teach you? Hmm. Um, one of the things I benefited from in 2012 was I uh, there was a lousy economy, and so I had I had these wonderful college interns. Uh, they've they've all gone on to do great things. I've stayed in touch with several of them. And when we lost the race, one of the things I had to do was try to you know that was they were all personally committed, and as was I, of course. But I had to help them get through losing something that mattered to them. And so in the process of that, one of them said, you know, you should be a college president. I had come very close to higher education once before, and I thought, you know, maybe it's time. Most most Rhodes Scholars spend some time in higher education, and so I started looking around for the right fit, and I found it. I found a wonderful university, the best engineering and science university you have never heard of, uh, South Dakota School of Mines and Technology. It's a fantastic university in, in western South Dakota, and absolutely loved it. So what that experience and having lost taught me was, uh, you know, sometimes doors close, but windows open. Sometimes there is a plan that's beyond our own plans. And uh, those young people who convinced me to, to go into higher ed. By all accounts, you had a good relationship with the former defense secretary, Jim Mattis. Mm. He was heavily involved in recruiting you uh, yes, he was, to, yeah. to come to be the secretary of the Air Force. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you that story too. Yeah, please. Yes. <laughs> well, I was so I'm in South Dakota. I'm president of a university. You know, I've got living I've got the a, good life. I have you know hiking, biking, fly fishing within ten minutes of my campus near Mount Rushmore. I mean, life's good, right? <laughs> and my phone rings, and uh, and uh, he says, uh, "This is Jim Mattis, and um, I want to talk to you about becoming secretary of the Air Force." And I said, "Honest to goodness," I said, um, "Sir, you do know that." Being a college president is like the best job in America, right? <laughs> and, and he goes, yeah, I know. I just came from Stanford. <laughs> I said, I didn't apply for any job. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm happy out here. And 
and he said he knew I didn't apply, but he then kind of described my genetic predisposition and thought that the Air Force needed somebody to be the leader who understood airmen. And so we talked for several time, several phone conversations, and, and he made it pretty clear that my draft number was up. It was time. Yep. <laughs> I want to ask, one of the things that is really striking right now is there's a new generation of women in leadership roles. Yeah throughout the traditionally male-dominated national security world and defense industry, what do you think it means for women to be in these sorts of positions? I think it's great. And particularly, I see a lot of them in defense industry now and have really come into their own in defense industry and leading some of America's best corporations. And I think what it it says to young women is there aren't any barriers. There are no barriers. Um, to uh, to talent rising. Mm. And I think that's wonderful. America needs exceptionally talented people. And uh, and they come in all shapes and sizes. Just two last questions. We're running quickly out of time. But, you know, we're, we're coming off of a 35-day shutdown. Mm. In the Capitol, they're trying to figure out a deal to come forward. What was the impact that the Air Force felt during the shutdown? Was there any? Well, of course, the Defense Department budget, we were still operating. Right. So that was uh, that was very important. It may have had an impact on some of our suppliers mm-hmm. who, who also had, you know, for example, there are companies that support the Air Force that also support NASA or those kinds mm-hmm. of things. So there may have been an impact there or on, on some of our operations in that way. I think more than that, it's there are a lot of people who work in the Pentagon whose neighbors uh, work in other government agencies. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a lot of empathy uh, for their situation as the government worked this through. How important is it, do you think we move beyond the shutdown in this next iteration? Well, I think it's important always for the government to be able to, to operate and do the things that it needs to do. And I'm, I think we're all hopeful that that will happen. I think one of the things when I'm up on Capitol Hill that I talk about is this is the first year, I think, in, in 10 years where we've had an authorization and appropriations bill for defense that started at the beginning of the year. That has been so important in running this department. We, we looked at our first quarter financials, and we actually executed a quarter of our program in the first quarter of the year. We were hitting our training numbers for flying hours, and people aren't holding back, wondering whether, you know, we've started new programs. We started research um, rather than crunching everything into six or nine months. It's a, it's a much better way to run the Defense Department, and we're deeply grateful um, to the Congress for, for getting those appropriations on time. All right. Last question. You've earned uh, praise from both Republicans and Democrats for your work here as Secretary of the Air Force. Uh, you probably know where I'm going to go with this, but certainly Senator Joni Ernst and I were Republican mm. tweeted that you would make a great Secretary of Defense and make our country proud. You have Ted Lieu on the other side, a California Democrat and U.S. Air Force veteran, joined in tweeting that you embody the core values of integrity first, service before self, and excellence in all we do. He's also an airman. Yes. Do you have any interest in being the Secretary of Defense? I serve uh, here at the pleasure of the president and with the confirmation of the Senate. And uh, um, and I think think that's probably where I am. But no, you can't give us a sneak peek of where the next defense secretary. I uh, I think that's up to the president of the United States and the and the United States Senate. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.
Women Rule is produced by Zach Stanton. Our booker is Jessica Andrews. Dave Shaw is the executive producer of Politica Audio. The show is made in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. Please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rural community by texting WOMEN to 66866.